Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, or UNESCO, has named Fort Mose a slave route project site of memory. We'll talk with historical archaeologist Kathy Deegan, who discovered the location of Fort Mose. I first learned about Fort Mose uh, when I was a student at the University of Florida in the early 1970s. And one of my professors was very interested in learning more about Fort Mose. And I was a student on one of the digs he brought over here to St. Augustine to try and locate it. The Library of Florida History is now listed in the National Register of Historic Places. So we fall under both criteria A and C for architecture and the association with a broad event, that broad event being the WPA in Florida. And we'll discuss railroad dining cars of the early 20th century. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Historical archaeologist Kathy Deegan is Distinguished Research Curator and Professor Emerita from the University of Florida. She led a series of excavations that identified the original encampment of Pedro Menendez de Avales from 1565. From that encampment, the city of St. Augustine was established as the oldest continuously occupied European settlement in what is now the United States. We began that project in the 70s thinking we were going to be studying an Indian village. And over the years, as our sample became larger, we realized, wait a minute, this isn't like anything we've ever seen in a Native American town. Square buildings made with nails, and when we found a barrel well filled with mid-16th century Spanish artifacts, we realized this must be the Menendez encampment, but everybody had assumed that had been washed away decades ago by the tidal creeks and the hurricanes. And so we changed our strategy and bit by bit have been uncovering that settlement. But that was uh, almost a surprise, but a very exciting one. For more than 40 years, Deegan led annual excavations in St. Augustine in what is now the Fountain of Youth Archaeological Park and at the adjacent Mission Nombre de Dios. Identifying the starting point of America's oldest continuously occupied city would seem to be the crowning achievement of any archaeologist's career. It's not her four decades of work in the heart of St. Augustine, though, that Deegan identifies as her most significant accomplishment. Deegan believes that her most important work was the excavation of Gracia Real de Santa Teresa de Mose, better known as Fort Mose. 
Established in 1738 by Manuel Montiano, governor of Spanish colonial Florida, Fort Mose was the first free black settlement to be legally established in what would become the United States. The community was located just north of St. Augustine. I first learned about Fort Mose uh, when I was a student at the University of Florida in the early 1970s. And uh, one of my professors, Charles Fairbanks, was very interested in, in learning more about Fort Mose. And I was a, a student on one of the digs he brought over here to St. Augustine to try and locate it. Deegan built on the work of Fairbanks, leading her own excavations at the Fort Mose site in the mid-1980s. She was able to conclusively identify the location of the fort on an island in the middle of a wet, marshy area. It is an area that uh, is hard to work in uh, because it's in the middle of a marsh and much of the marsh area has been dredged so you couldn't exactly walk there and you couldn't uh, really take a vehicle of any kind. But uh, for some reason, the dredging in this area managed to leave the spot where the fort itself is intact and we've often wondered if those 19th century earth movers had a sense that that's where the fort was. But for archaeologists, it was a matter of putting on your high boots and slogging through the mud. And uh, we had a lot of students out there. Uh, we issued them all their black rubber boots. And once you're on the actual site itself, which is a small marsh island here behind me, it is high ground. Uh, we learned that the site actually has been occupied by people for hundreds and hundreds of years. There was a prehistoric Tumuqua Indian site there, and then very briefly there was an Appalachian mission after 1704, and then Fort Mose. And so once you're on the site, it's normal excavation, digging through shell and dirt and tree roots. Deegan and her team were able to provide context for the discoveries that they made on the small marsh island north of St. Augustine, proving that they had uncovered the site of Fort Mose. A lot of the archaeological work at Fort Mose actually was oriented toward the architecture. Uh, it was necessary for us to show that um, this was in fact Fort Mose. And uh, so it was really exciting to us when we were able to plot the moat and dig and locate where the moat itself for the fort was in several places and it really had to be Fort Mose. Uh, the artifacts were of the right time period. There weren't a lot of artifacts, but they were all really interesting. Some things you would associate with soldiers, uniform buttons, lots of rum bottles, tobacco pipes, uh, and things you'd associate with family life. Thimbles and pins, buttons, pottery for cooking, pottery for eating. And uh, it was just, uh, I think an exciting process to suddenly realize, yes, this is the site of the place that there's been so much controversy about. Where was it? Did it really exist? Was even you know, the thinking in some ways. The population of the community at Fort Mose consisted primarily of former slaves who had escaped from British colonies to the north into Spanish-controlled Florida. The Spanish government encouraged this immigration of British slaves by granting them freedom in exchange for their conversion to Catholicism and a pledge to defend St. Augustine from British invasion. Kathy Deegan. Yes, when the people uh, arrived here from the plantations in the Carolinas, they, um, they were obligated to become Catholic in order to gain freedom, to be emancipated. It was a religious sanctuary is the way the Spaniards looked at it. 
And uh, there doesn't seem to be any indication at all that this was uh, problematical or distasteful to any of the people of Mose. They had their children baptized in the church. Their records are there. They had godparents and um, throughout the town. And so from every outward appearance, they fully embraced the um, notion of religious conversion. Now, whether they thought that, uh, we, we don't know. But uh, we didn't, for example, find any kind of material culture that would suggest one of the syncretic religions that you see so often in, in Latin America, where Catholicism is blended with a, a, a non-Christian tradition. Um, we didn't see that at all at Mose, but uh, that doesn't mean people weren't thinking. Meticulous research of historical documents combined with the material discoveries at the Fort Mose site produced a much more complete picture of what life was like for people of African descent in 18th century Florida. There are times when I have thought the best thing that came out of the archaeology was the history. Uh, because as part of the project, really before we begin, we always want to have a, a, a real historian uh, search the records, do original research, so we just don't find out what they really already knew. And at that time, in really the 70s and early 80s, the thinking was that uh, there's disenfranchised people, African Americans, slaves, women, children, poor people, didn't have a history. And the idea was it's up to the archaeologists to, to provide a history of words from the earth. But when Jane Landers, who was a graduate student working with me at the time, went to Spain to specifically look for information about the people of Mose, uh, we were all astounded at the amount of detail there was and how much information there is. Sometimes you just have to ask the right question to find it. So the original research that came out of the project, I think, has been a major contribution uh, to Florida history. Today, Fort Mose is known as the first legally sanctioned free black community in what is now the United States. Prior to Kathy Deegan identifying the site of Fort Mose, the fascinating history of the community was not well known. Before the archaeological program, there really wasn't very much awareness at all of Fort Mose. There were a few scholarly articles, uh, but they weren't in uh, mainstream sort of publications that everyone would read about. And the history wouldn't have been unknown or lost without the archaeology because there were always some people who knew it was here. But I think it brought it to a much wider understanding and appreciation. And the ripples that came out of that have really lasted down to today and we hope into the future in terms of community interest and awareness. Francisco Menendez escaped slavery to begin a new life in Florida. His military skill and bravery defending St. Augustine from attack led to his being named head of the militia at Fort Mose. The leader of the group at Fort Mose and the head of the militia, Francisco Menendez, has to be one of the most interesting people and colorful people in Florida history, maybe even American history. He was a Mandingo. He came to the Carolinas probably as a youth and escaped slavery. He allied with the Yamasee Indians in their fight against the English at the Yamasee War. 
came with the Yamasee to Florida. It went through several series of being betrayed and sold into slavery and escaping. He was a corsair. He was uh, apparently a, a well-educated person. He could write and did write and was, his story is really remarkable. You wouldn't really believe it if you saw it in a movie. You would think it was invented. The community of Fort Mose was short-lived. When the British took control of Florida from Spain in 1763, Fort Mose was abandoned. When Florida was ceded to England in exchange for Havana after the end of the Seven Years' War, uh, all of the residents of St. Augustine left rather than stay and live with the Protestant English. And all of the people of Mose uh, were among them. There were 86 people at Mose then, and they uh, all went to Cuba, to the province of Matanzas, uh, where some of them stayed, many of them left and moved back to Havana. But uh, the records of, of their lives have been uncovered in Cuba, again by Jane Landers, who is learning uh, their fate and if there might even be some descendants today. People of African descent have been an integral part of Florida history from even before the Spanish colonial period. All of the Spanish ships that came to Florida in the 16th century had black people on board, and not all of them were slaves. Kathy Deegan. People of African descent have been uh, coming to Florida and part of Florida since it was known to exist in Europe. Uh, Ponce de Leon had black, free black sailors and soldiers with him. Um, there were probably black soldiers with, or sailors at least, with Pedro Menendez. And we know that immediately he rescued a lot of the captives from shipwrecks, particularly in South Florida, and among them were a number of African heritage or mixed blood mulatto people. And they had been here even before Menendez. And it's sort of interesting to think about the capture of all of these shipwreck victims over the years before uh, Florida was settled because not all of the first slaves here were black. Most of them, in fact, were white, but they were slaves of the Calusa and the Tamuqua. So the woman who discovered the original site of St. Augustine, the oldest continuously occupied city in what is now the United States, is even more proud to have discovered the actual site of Fort Mose. She says that the archaeology at Fort Mose has expanded our understanding of history. Well, the story of Fort Mose is really important for all of American history, not just Florida. Uh, it provides, I think, a wide audience, an alternate vision of what African-American heritage in America is, is all about. It wasn't just a story of slavery and oppression. It was also this very successful story of resistance and flight and rebuilding a new place and a new time. Fort Mose Historic Park is located two miles north of St. Augustine where there is an interpretive museum. There is also a long boardwalk that allows you to walk out over a marshy area to view the island where Fort Mose once stood. That's where we spoke with Kathy Deegan, Distinguished Research Curator and Professor Emerita from the University of Florida.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events like the Florida Historical Society Conference Cruise to Cuba, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, and subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. Our house is a very, very, very fine house With two cats in the yard Life used to be so hard Now everything is easy because of you Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, the Library of Florida History is now listed in the National Register of Historic Places. Yeah, that's right, Ben. That occurred in April of 2019, and the National Register of Historic Places actually can trace its origins to the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966, and it's under the auspices of the U.S. Department of Interior National Park Service, and the entire goal of the program is to identify, to list, and help protect both historic and prehistoric sites throughout the United States that are significant to the history of the United States. And it's a fairly broad mission, it's a broad collection scope, and there are tens of thousands of, of properties and sites throughout the country, thousands of which are, are right here in Florida, that qualify under the Department of Interior's requirements to be a historic site or property. And this building is just recently qualified. And the program itself, like I said, is administered through the National Park Service, but it's actually the state historic preservation offices that approve the sites. They send them up to the National Park Service for further approval, and then you are now officially listed on that site. And as I said before, protection is a big part of the their mission because we tend to to build over our history rather quickly. And Florida's history is relatively uh, short compared to other states in the United States. We're only talking, you know, 200 years of really serious development in the state and frankly, a little bit less than that, actually. So some of our sites aren't as old as others, although we do have some great colonial historical sites throughout the state. So it's really important to protect both the prehistoric and historic sites throughout Florida. Now, the state headquarters of the Florida Historical Society and Library of Florida History, where we're sitting right now, was originally a 1939 WPA-era post office. Yeah, that's right, Ben. The building was originally constructed in 1939. It opened in April of 1940, and the funding came through the WPA, so that was all through the uh, Treasury Department. And this was, as you said, a post office building. It was a massive, at that time, uh, federal structure in a very small rural town in east-central Florida. And it operated as a federal building for most of its life. It was a post office until about the mid-1960s. Then the General Services Administration took over, and, and they stuck a lot of other various federal offices in this building, including the FBI. A lot of military recruiters were in this building, Social Security office. So anything that needed kind of a local local office for a federal agency was essentially stuck in this building until the 1990s when the Florida Historical Society took it over. What's interesting about this building is really the architectural characteristics that link it to the WPA. So it's considered a, a late Art Deco design or a what they call streamlined modern or depression-era modern. The characteristics of the style are these clean lines that 
kind of draw the eye up so the building looks a little more imposing. It looks like the whole idea was to give sort of, this is during the Depression era, they want to give this commanding presence for the federal government, this stability, and that was personified essentially through these buildings. And this architectural style or these characteristics are captured in the building that exists now, you know, 80 years after it was originally constructed. So that's what's important, and that's what really helps it qualify. So the National Register has certain criteria for evaluation, and that includes the association with an historic event or associated with a specific person, for example, you know, George Washington slept here, that sort of thing, or embodies distinctive characteristics of period, style, or method of construction, which is what we qualify under, or it yields or, or has the likelihood of yielding some sort of information important to prehistory. That generally qualifies for architectural sites. So, so we fall under both criteria A and C for architecture and the association with a broad event, that broad event being the WPA in Florida. Now, I know that you led this effort to recognize the Library of Florida history, but anyone can nominate a property for inclusion in the National Register of Historic Places, right? Yes, that's right. And as I mentioned earlier, all of the evaluations go through the state office. So this is the Florida Department of State, the Division of Historical Resources, the Bureau of Historic Preservation. Their office will review each application. So you submit a preliminary evaluation. The office will then look at your preliminary evaluation and say, yes, go ahead with you know compiling all that information. If you get through that process, then the application goes to a state national register review board, and that consists of a lot of professional architects, historians, archaeologists that will then again uh, kind of dig through the criteria, make sure that it qualifies and that there is a, a certain level of integrity present within the structure or historic site. And then from there, it's sent to the National Park Service in Washington, D.C. To, uh, to get the final stamp of approval. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. If you'd like to see the building we've been discussing online, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org, or you can visit us in person in Coco Village at the Library of Florida History. La, la, la. This is Florida Frontiers. In the early 20th century, railroad dining cars offered an elegant experience to rival a fancy restaurant. Robert Casanello is an associate professor of history at the University of Central Florida. There are still dining cars even on Amtrak. You don't get the same experience today on Amtrak that you would have gotten on one of the individual railroads, say back in the 1930s, 40s, or 50s. It's a totally different experience today. It's far less uh, elegant to eat in the dining car today than it was back in, you know, the 30s, 40s, 50s, in that, that time period. That was Philip Cross, president of the Central Florida chapter of the National Railway Historical Society. He spoke to me about dining cars on railroads during the 20th century. He brought me out to the Central Florida Railroad Museum in Winter Garden, Florida, where on display are artifacts from railroads that traveled throughout Florida. He took me to a corner of the museum where on display are photos and objects from railway dining cars. I asked him to describe for me what a typical dining car would look like. Generally, um, the tables were on both sides of the car next to the window. There was an aisle in the center. 
Most of the tables would have sat um, a group of up to four people. They would have some tables that were for two people. Uh, most all of them had a very fine linen tablecloth and the, the um, place settings would already be in place when you came to take your seat and, and have your meal. A lot of trains had their own dining car, you know, china and silver. Uh, sometimes it would have been railroad wide. There was no difference. But, but sometimes cer certain special trains or, or uh, highly visible trains would have their own um, set of dining car uh, china and silver. They had menus as well, and you could order from from that menu. Um, and of course, everything was laid out in in exactly the same order. All the the plates would be polished. All the silver was highly polished. Um, it was a truly a uh, an elegant dining experience to eat on a railroad dining car. What really caught my eye were the colorful menus on display. Menus were very colorful. Um, of course, you know, all the railroads were in competition, so each one would try to outdo the other one. Um, they would be very um, unique, very colorful. They would have a wide array of foods, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner. There would be, a, uh, you know, a, a nice selection of, you know, salads, um, sides, entrees, uh, desserts. It wasn't just maybe a choice of one or two items. They would have many items as choices. What I did not know was that there were private dining cars on the railroads. Philip Cross explains. The private cars on the railroads were used by either the railroad owners or the railroad upper management, and they were used to transport um, these uh, important folks from one location on the railroad to another. Those cars would have sleeping facilities, they would have bathroom facilities, shower facilities, they would have their own kitchen and, and dining area on some of those cars. Their meals were probably more um, elegant, more extravagant than, than those that were offered to the public riding the train. Private cars are still in use today on some of the larger railroads. They still have private cars for their upper management. We have to thank collectors for the fact that we have these artifacts from the railroads. Mr. Cross tells me why these objects have been preserved. Anything railroad, and especially if it's railroad marked, is collectible in, in today's um, society and in, in today's collecting. Any piece of China that, first of all, is not railroad marked, either on the top or the back, is less desirable. The next level would be if it's marked with the railroad's letters only. Like Florida East Coast Railway would be F-E-C-R-Y. If it had the name spelled out, that would be even more collectible. And the, the ultimate collectible is the pieces of China that have the railroad logo on them. You know, ironically, the railroads, when they first started having all this equipment, they marked it with their name in an effort to curb stealing, but that certainly didn't. And that, and that is the desirable uh, items or any that's railroad marked. That was Philip Cross. I interviewed him and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida Podcast. You can find it on iTunes and on the Internet. I am Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week 
You can also find us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org or listen as a podcast. Join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker with help this week from Robert Casanello. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.